everyone. Welcome to another awesome session of College Coaching Network Social Learning Live. This is actually our first social learning live for the year. So happy New Year's, happy everyone. New Year. Happy New Year's. We are so excited about this session because tonight we're going to talk about success habits. And we have a very, very, very special guest, Mr. Tom Corley, who has written a plethora of books. But I want to go through right quick and introduce our panelists tonight. So with us, we have Ms. Rainey Cadenhead, who is a former software engineer. Hello, Ms. Rainey. Hi. We also have Ms. Bernie Winston, who is an education consultant and former software project manager. Hello, Ms. Bernie. And her beautiful daughter, Ms. Lauren Winston, Hi. who is a freshman at Vanderbilt. And she's super smart, guys. She's double majoring in public health and business. Hello, Ms. Lauren. And then we have the very beautiful and talented Ms. Bridget yeah. Watt, who is a a author. She's also a consultant and she works with many other publishing companies. So thank you all ladies for joining us today. And she's and a new director. She's a new director too. Yes. You want you tell us real quick, uh, cause that's a new blessing that just came. Certainly. Um, I'm honored to uh, serve as the managing director for KC Mothers in Charge, a local nonprofit in Kansas City. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And then last but certainly not least, our very, very special guest, Mr. Tom Corley. He is a CPA, a CFP, holds a master's degree in taxation, is a best-selling and award-winning author. His books include Rich Habits, Rich Kids, Change Your Habits, Change Your Life, Rich Habits, Poor Habits, and Effortless Wealth, Smart Money Habits, and Energy in every stage of your life, at every stage of your life. That was a tongue twister. And also, Mr. Corley has appeared on CBS Evening News, The Dave Ramsey Show, CNN, MSN Money, USA Today, The Huffington Post, and the list goes on and on and on. We are so excited to have you with us today, Mr. Corley. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking this time out to share with our kids and our families. And so I'm going to turn it over to Clyde because Clyde Clyde is a huge fan of Mr. Corley's. And uh, so we're excited to get this episode started. Clyde? Yeah, I am grateful. Thank you, Mika. And thank you for everybody that's coming out. And um, and I know you guys have some amazing questions, so I'm excited to hear your perspective of what he has done a lot of research on. Tom, thank you so much for coming out. Um, yes, as Mika said, I'm a fan. I read the book and then I read the book twice and then I read the book again. And then I paid my kids $20 to read your book. <laughs> so uh, I am a big fan. And then I was at a picnic for one of our students that had a graduation party. And I was talking to Bernie and her daughter, Lauren. And I posed the uh, challenge to Lauren, who's going to Vanderbilt. I said, hey, if you read this book, and I, you remember me talking about this at that um, at the graduation party? So if you read this book, I'll pay you $20. Yeah. And I, and I didn't know that she actually read it already. So I owe her $20. So I'm publicly saying I owe you 20 bucks. So I got to make sure I get that to you. So um, big fan of your work. I've listened to all of your podcasts uh, several times. And I just want to go in, into your story. I believe that a lot of people from the community that we serve don't have the privilege of learning uh, from an expert uh, like yourself, because you're in a very unique area. So could you kind of share with us your background? Like, I know growing up, I don't know if you had a silver spoon in your mouth to kind of if you came from humble beginnings. So, like, let people see where, where you started from. Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, hello, everybody. And thank you for having me on. Um, I was one of um, there was 11 in our family. Uh, so uh, I guess our pa my parents thought they were farmers or something. They had, <laughs> we had so many kids living on in New York. Uh, and uh, my dad had, was really. Uh, a sharp guy. He was very smart and, and very successful. Uh, but he had what happens sometimes in life is you have random bad luck. Things happen. Uh, in his case, uh, he had his warehouse he had burned to the ground and he was the uh, tool, the number one tool distributor in the Northeast. You know, he sold to, to Sears. He sold to JC Penney's tools. He sold to all of the major retail outlets, all the hardware stores. Uh, and so we were very wealthy. 
until the uh, warehouse burned to the ground. And, um, and so, you know, literally overnight we went from, um, you know, my dad had uh, probably at that time about $3 million, which is probably like around 15 million in today's dollars, right? So pretty wealthy. Uh, but the, um, the tools that were destroyed, uh, they had no value. So the insurance company, uh, the insurance companies did things a little bit differently back in those days, which this was in 1972. And um, they didn't cover most, most of the tools. So my dad and my dad had to pay the vendors. So he took all of his money and he paid all the vendors uh, just because he felt like if he went bankrupt, which was was the uh, one of the options, um, they would all go bankrupt. So he said, let let me let me uh, just pay them and I'll I won't file for bankruptcy, but I'll try and survive. And it, it, we really didn't do too well their survival wise we um, almost lost our house when you know with 11 people in it to become homeless well you know just to fast forward so i had this um exposure to being wealthy and i had this exposure to being rich i don't know how many people have ever had seen both sides of the railroad tracks you know and i did and i will tell you this being wealthy is way better way better um when i <laughs> when i uh went to college i, I didn't even um, apply to college, and, and it was a friend of mine, my, my buddy Sal, my best friend, who was, whose parents uh, was a school teacher and a doctor, anesthesiologist, and they, they were raised with a lot of rich habits. And Sal said, you're, you're applying to college. You can't just uh, surrender to life like that. You have to apply. So I said, but I can't pay for college. I don't have any money. My parents have no money. And so he said, don't worry about the money just apply. And so I, I applied and, you know, the brain's an amazing thing. Uh, when your back is up against the wall, the brain comes up with solutions. Yes. And the solution it came up with is you better find a job that you can work while you're going to school full time, to college full time. And I found it. It was a janitor. I was a janitor for four years at, uh, at Curtis High School on Staten Island. And they paid a pretty good amount of money, for, you know, in my, in my view. And uh, I was able to afford college. And, and so now fast forward back to uh, up forward to 2004. And uh, I had just taken over the helm of the CPA firm that I'm running right so, now. So before you go there, before you go there, because there's a couple things that you said that I want to unpack, if you don't mind. Sure. The first one is you said your dad valued integrity over finances. Yeah. So because he basically covered those expenses where he could have just kept the money himself and let everybody else go bust. Right. So That's right. seeing that your lifestyle was dramatically altered because he chose integrity over being financially secure, being in your home and kind of seeing the differences that was happening because of the sacrifice that he made. How did that shape your character and your integrity seeing that? Well, I, what I learned from my dad is that um, no matter what, you always do what your brain tells you is the right thing to do, no matter what the consequences. Uh, and so, um, you know, I've lived my life that way. I mean, I, mean, I have a, th a thousand clients in my CPA firm. They love, they love us because we, uh, if we, if we make a mistake, and you know, when you have a thousand clients, mistakes do happen. There's just five to six people working here. Uh, and I, uh, I had one that just happened. Uh, one of my employees made a mistake and I called up the client. I said, we screwed up. And uh, it's, uh, you know, there was some tax penalties that, that she caused. And I said, I'll pay for it. You, you shouldn't pay for it. It's not your fault. So we kind of do stuff like that where they know that we have their back yes. and uh, we don't make mistakes often, but when we do, we stand behind uh, our mistakes and we, we don't, uh, you know, we don't dish them off to other people or we don't come up with excuses, which a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of professionals will, you know, because people think, well, you know, I don't want I don't want anybody to know I made a mistake. I, you know, I have to tell you something about mistakes. They are beautiful things. Uh, when I was training one of uh, we hired a new person about six years ago, she was she didn't know anything about taxes. 
And so I, I happen to be a pretty good teacher. I, I have a lot of patience and I love teaching. Uh, so I said, don't worry, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know. And so um, I would have to review everything that she did, which caused me more time. And, and I would come back to when I say, here's another mistake. This is what you need to do. And she and then after like around the 10th return, she uh, tax return, she she came into my office and she shut the door. She says, I don't think this job is right for me. I said, why? I said, you're doing a beautiful job. She goes, I'm making so many mistakes. I said, I hope so. I said, that's how you learn. <laughs> right, right. And she, she looked at me strange because when we came from, she and I both came from these big CPA uh, firms. I came, I was with Arthur Anderson. She was with uh, Deloitte and Touche, Ernst and Young. And wow. you can't, you don't make mistakes in those big firms without them beating you over the head. So I understood where she was coming from. And I said, nah, in this firm, uh, you know, I, if I had, a uh, uh, you know, a, a pile of cash just sitting in my drawer. Every time you made a mistake, I'd give you 50 bucks uh, because I think if they're that valuable, uh, you know, the best, the best way uh, is to learn from a, a success mentor, uh, make mistakes and let them correct you. That's a, that's a blessing when you have a, a, a success mentor behind you who's looking at your mistakes and explaining them to you. So, yeah, I, I think the integrity part filtered down to all, all of us in my family. So a uh, last question, uh, just on the background on the family. There's so many uh, people that they go from privilege and then something happens and they go, you know, down another path financially. Um, and then sometimes they want to blame everybody. Right. Oh, it was my dad's father. It was my mom's father. What have you. How did you escape that trap of wanting to blame them and taking ownership for your own life? How did that how did that happen for you? Well, I was petrified of my father. So I could never blame anybody. If he found out, uh, you know, I said something that, uh, you know, where I was pushing it off to somebody else, uh, he would, he would, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's a fearsome person uh, and he, uh, you never got away with it. So, so I, I can remember because I used to play tennis. I was a top tennis player in the United, in, as a, as a kid, uh, 18 and under in the United States. And, um, I remember, um, you know, one time I lost a match and I, and I said to my father, I said, I lost this in the finals and I, I blamed it on whatever the hell it was. My racket sucks. I was, uh, I, you know, I had all these excuses and he said, oh, your rack, your racket stinks. Huh? And so we went over and he got my racket and he broke it in half and he says, now you have no racket. <laughs> and I, and I he said, so you have nothing to blame. No excuses. Yeah. You have nothing to blame but yourself. And so I thought I remember I had to, you know, I couldn't play tennis for two weeks. I had to, I had to uh, save up enough money from doubling snow and doing whatever to get a tennis racket. And uh, but I do, I do remember that he uh, he made that point very clear. You, you know, you don't you don't blame anybody, but you know, you blame yourself before you blame anybody else because you're the one that's accountable. Because if somebody else did something to you, it's your fault for doing business with them or associating with them. Why were you even hanging wow. around with them? Wow. That's good. So, so that, that's good stuff. So kind of fast forwarding, because we can we can go through the college part. But the you, you got into your own firm. And from what I remember listening to either through the book or also what I heard in podcasts, you had this client that came into your office mm -hmm. and they were not very successful. They were having some issues. They couldn't make payroll or something like that from what I was reading. And you had some successful clients and this unsuccessful client wanted to learn how he could get out of the dilemma he was in. And he came to you. So can you walk us through that story? Yeah, I'll never forget it, uh, Claude, because I was I had just started uh, running the firm. And uh, I think I was in three months and th this one um, business client had an auto body shop and, and this was a tough guy, a big, tough guy. All of most of the people that worked in my firm were, were women who were afraid of him. And I, uh, to be honest with you, I was, I was afraid of him because of what they told me about him. So anyway, he calls and he says, I need to meet with you tonight. I need an immediate meeting, you know? And so we met and he said, look, uh, in a very gruff voice he says, uh, I've been, my father was a client of Seraphis and company. I, he sold the business to me. Now I'm the client. 
and uh, this is what I need you to do for me. I need you to find me a bank that can get me a line of credit ASAP. And I looked at him and I said, you've got to be out of your mind. I said, there is no bank in the world that's going to lend you money in three days. Not going to happen. Uh, and he looked at me. He was so mad. Uh, but then I, I said to him, look, you have to develop relationships with these banks over sometimes years before they'll lend you money. Yeah. Uh, so I explained it to him. And I said, I said, well, what, what's, why are you in this situation? And that was the question I asked him. And he stopped and he thought a minute and he said, you know, uh, when I, my dad had a very successful business and I kind of inherited it from him. And, uh, you know, everything was going pretty well. Uh, but, you know, I, I've, I needed a line of credits about 10 years ago and I started tapping into it about $40,000 a year. And, um, and he said, now I've got $450,000 or so. And the bank shut down my line of credit. They termed the loan. And uh, I can't make payroll this Friday. Mm. And he looked at me and then he stopped being a tough guy. And he said, I just don't know what I'm doing wrong. And he started crying. And he said, what, what do your successful clients do that I'm not doing? And, you know, why? what are the things that I'm doing wrong? So, I, of course, I, I spent a couple of months in, in his uh, business, you know, probably a day a week for, for about two months, just to try and understand, you know, how, how his business was operating. If I could see anything that was sticking out. The only thing I saw was that he was paying himself about $40,000 more than my other auto body clients. So I asked him, I said, how come you're paying yourself $40,000 more? And he said, you know, I have, you know, these, he had some bad habits. Let's just put it that way. And the right, right, bad right. habits, the one bad habit cost him $40,000 a year or something like about $800 a week. And so I did the math. I said, well, that's, you know, if you do the math, I, I said to him that, that $800 a week, that's six to 800 a week is costing you $40,000 a year. That's why you're going into debt. You have one, literally one bad habit that is bankrupting you. And so that took me on a path of really trying to understand. Um, I wanted to answer two questions when I started my rich habit study. I wanted to know why are rich people rich and why are poor people poor? And the other question was, what do rich people and poor people do from the minute that they wake up in the morning to the minute that they go to bed at night? So I had to, in order to, you know, understand the scope of their day, I had to come up with a bunch of questions that sort of covered their lives. So I came up with, I called it my 20 question list because it's 20 categories. But when you break it down, it's actually 144 questions. And I, I had, uh, I asked uh, th those questions to 233 millionaires and 128 poor people. And then I analyzed their responses, dumped it onto an Excel worksheet, analyzed their responses, and then they it hit me like like a, a ton of bricks on my head. I said, oh, my God, most of the differences between the rich people and the poor people are these things called habits. They're daily activities, yes, little things yes. that they're doing every day. It was it was shocking to me. So, so the thing I want to commend you on, first of all, is there's a lot of people out there that they talk about millionaires, the millionaire next door. Um, I think it's uh, highly effective people. Is it Stephen Covey or something like that that has that, that book that he talks about that. But most of the people that write about successful people are really only attacking one side of the conversation. Yes. And so you went on both sides of the conversation. So what innately got you to want to study both sides? Because I haven't heard of anybody that to do that. So I'll start with what made you study both sides? Well, so Claude, I'm so glad you asked that question because it is probably the thing that separates me from everybody else. Um, it's not, it's not enough to know what to do. You have to know what to do and what not to do, yes. because if you only know what to do and you don't know what not to do, how do you know you're not doing the things you shouldn't be doing? Mm -hmm. So I felt that I needed to understand what poor people were doing wrong. So I could say to Claude, hey, Claude, you know, what, what, you know, I could say to you, what rich habits do you have? And you could run off. I got these 10 rich habits. And I said, well, what about poor habits? And you say, oh, I don't know. Nobody's ever asked me that question. 
And then you could run off a list of 12 poor habits that you have. Well, guess what, Claude? No matter how many rich habits you have, if you have more poor habits, you're going to have a tough life because it's like a teeter-totter. Uh, you want the rich habits to really be, you know, the ones that are pushing down on the ground and, and you know, the, the poor habits don't have as much force, uh, you know? So I felt that a metaphor I like to use is um, if anybody likes sports like I do football, you know, knowing what to do gets you to the 50-yard line, but knowing what not to do gets you across the goal line uh, mm. because it's, you know, you, you need to know it saves you time and money, particularly time because um, a lot of people don't have money when they're starting a business, let's say, but they have time. And it saves you so much time when you already know the things that you shouldn't be doing. And so I felt that that was the reason why I needed to cover both the rich habits and the poor habits. Plus, it gives you some perspective. You can look at the rich habits and you can look at the poor habits and you can make a self-assessment, which is where I was really trying to get people to become self-aware of their habits. What are your rich habits? What are your poor habits? And um, and then if, if self-awareness is a superpower... If you're self-aware of your habits, if you're self-aware of your thinking, if you're self-aware of your emotions, that acts like a breaking system, preventing you from engaging in bad things, bad emotions, bad habits, bad thinking. So you spent about, what, three and a half years doing – how much time did you spend doing this research? Uh, it was about six hours a day over a, almost a four-year period and then a year of analyzing the data. So I had to, you know, because I was running a CPA firm, I had to get up at 4.30 in the morning uh, to really sort of tee up my, you know, the what I needed to do, the research I needed to do for my study. And then at night, I would spend about an hour and a half. So I would say probably two and a half hours in the morning, an hour and a half at night. And I did that consistently. And then on the weekends, uh, probably about 10 hours on the weekends. So I would get up really early. So my kids were still young, younger back then. And uh, I felt I didn't want to interfere. I didn't want it to interfere with my family life. So I would get up really early, like on, especially on the weekends, like four, sometimes three 30. And I get like four hours, five hours in uh, on a Saturday and the same on a Sunday. And I did this for almost four years. Uh, and uh, it was, it was hard. It was really hard, and, and but you know what? I was so motivated because uh, I knew I was onto something big. Uh, I I think I felt when I when that client I met that client and I realized it was one habit that drove him into bankruptcy. I said I think I might have found the holy grail that uh, could help help people uh, prevent them from becoming poor and maybe even help them become wealthy. So I was really motivated. I had no idea it was going to, the idea of writing a book was the furthest thing from my mind. What I did want to do was tra do training. I wanted to take my rich habits and I did. I did some training. I did it for free for the, like a, probably about six, six months to a year. Um, I, I was really just trying to uh, figure out how to communicate these rich habits to people. And I got pretty good at it. Uh, and people started having real success in my training groups. Uh, and so then they, they, somebody said, you need to write a book about this stuff. And um, I was like, I have no idea how to write a book. But <laughs> then I thought about it. And I said, you know, I, I don't think writing a book is harder than, than studying for and taking the CPA exam. Uh, and, and it wasn't. It was actually a lot easier. It was probably 25% as hard. So... Um, so I ended up writing a book and found out, and this is the beauty of uh, stepping outside your comfort zone, doing something you never did before. I found out I had an innate trait, an innate ability to, of writing. I was a good writer. I never knew it. I knew I was a good speaker because I had done plenty of speaking engagements uh, for mainly taxes and stuff like that. But uh, I didn't know I was a good writer. And I'm, I'm actually better than good. I'm not bragging, but I've gotten, I've won awards for my writing. So I know, and I, and, uh, and media keeps coming back to me and asking me to write articles. 
So they wouldn't be asking me if, if I stunk, you know, <laughs> or if I was just average. So, I love it. So th this is, this is, and I'm sure that everybody else has a question, but it's, it's very rare that you get a chance to interview the person that wrote the book that you love. So I'm sorry, I'm here as a fan. I'm just, these questions that I want to always ask. I'm like, I finally get a chance to ask them. So you, you did both sides of the equation. Right. But the thing that always intrigued me about your story was you and I thought it was three and a half years, but you actually did long more than that. You did four years. But on the inside of you, you didn't really have a clue as to why you were doing this research. You said you felt like, you know, you're on to something big. You're maybe going to discover the Holy Grail. But along the way, there weren't always confirmations that would tell you that you're on to something big. But for some reason or another, you kept getting up and getting up and staying up late and getting up. What caused you to do this? I mean, like, I mean, there was there was nothing that was definite that was going to come from your work. But for some reason or another, you couldn't let it go. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, there's a clue there for other people that may have a gift or a passion or a calling on their life. And there's something that, that they're trying to work towards. And they feel like maybe they feel right now that they're not going to like what they're doing is in vain. But what caused you to keep doing it until you got to that point where the aha moment kicked in for you? Well, there's really two things. One is, I think, uh, growing up on both sides of the railroad track, I think that was an itch I needed to scratch for a long time. And and that client just just lit a fire under my butt. Uh, I, I think that that was a big factor. I think the other factor was as I started doing the research, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking initially just to the rich people. And I, to be perfectly honest with you, I hated rich people. When I started this, this study, I had um, this uh, perception of rich people that they were fat, greedy, smoked cigars, and uh, they were gluttons and they were horrible human beings. And uh, when I started looking at the responses, because none of them knew they were in a study. That's a very important point. Not one of them knew I was I was asking them these questions because I was doing a study. They thought I was asking them these questions as part of my financial services, you know, trying to understand them because I kept telling them, I need to know everything about you so I can provide the best service I can to you. And um, and so so I started learning things. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I never I that's completely that's completely uh, pulling the rug out from underneath my belief system. And and I found out a lot of these uh, self-made millionaires, a lot of these millionaires were self-made. In my study, 76% of them were self-made. They were poor and, and or raised in the middle class just, just like, you know, I was. And uh, and so so I, I that was a, a big deal to me. I said, I said, boy, if, if they could do it, why can't why can't I do it? And so I really started to have this thirst or this hunger for what it is that they were doing on a daily basis, their habits, I guess, that were helping uh, them, you know, raise them up. And they had certain specific things that they did from one millionaire to the next millionaire to the next millionaire. It wasn't just a one off. Every single one of them. I see it popping up from one one millionaire to the next. I was like, wow. The, I And that's when I, I got... You know when you like the light bulb goes off in your head. Yeah. We've all had those aha moments in life. I had this this epiphany of an aha moment that I I said I think I found the secret to success, and also the secret to avoiding poverty. And, and so I I was really I was just so pumped up. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to do. And I actually you know I only wanted to interview a hundred rich people. And I only wanted to interview 100 poor people. And I ended up interviewing 233 rich people and 128. I had to stop myself because I, uh, with the poor people, I said, this is, you're going, you're getting out of control here. So I stopped. That's why the numbers are kind of weird. I just, I just had, I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself from, from interviewing one after, because, because when you have a billionaire that you're talking to, you know, they have, they have friends, they're in a circle probably other millionaires. So they would refer me other millionaires and and they would say, boy, you, this guy's great. He asks more questions than anybody I ever met. And you got to have him as your CPA or your financial advisor. 
that was I got that comment, and they had no idea that, that I was asking questions for for a completely different reason. <laughs> so. That's awesome. So I, I'll open it up and see if any other panelists um, want to ask questions. You've got you got the expert here, so if you want to, go for it. Wait, any of the Okay. Hi, okay. Mr. Can you hear us? Mm -hmm. I can. I would like to know from you. I know in the earlier days you spent four hours getting up, you know, early in the morning. What is your typical day like now for you? Maybe the first four hours. Tell me about okay, that. So I right now, almost every day, I wake up between four thirty and quarter to five in the morning. Even if I don't want to, I wake up at 4.30 or quarter to five in the morning. Now, when I started this research, the study, I was uh, one of these, I guess you call them night owls. I liked, I loved to sleep in. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, it was really hard in the beginning. I would say it took me three months to break myself of, of that habit of sleeping late and getting up at 4.30 in the morning. But but that's the incredible thing about habits is once they're forged, they stick with you forever. So I can't I can't sleep past 4.30. I, I the only way that happens is is if we have a party and I'm and somebody had you know celebrating we have you know something going on and I'm I'm up late or whatever. That that's maybe that that might be the exception. But uh, no it's uh yeah I, I do 4.30 in the morning and then the first thing I do, because this is what I found out from my research into the brain, because I've done, I've probably read about 30 books on the brain to understand how habits uh, work neurologically. And uh, what I found out is when you first wake up in the morning, you're, you're still in alpha state. So you go um, from alpha state to beta state, which is your awake state. Uh, but that takes about an hour or so when you're in that that intermediary be phase between alpha and beta, your your prefrontal cortex is not fully awake, and so you can do things that you don't want to do in the morning before your prefrontal cortex wakes up and says, "Hey, time out here! I hate what we're doing. Stop!" So <laughs> I I do all my technical reading. The first thing I do when I wake up, I, I, I get myself, uh, I actually don't get a cup of coffee until I'm 45 minutes into my reading because I'm afraid the caffeine is going to wake me up. So I like to stay in that alpha state uh, as long as I possibly can. And so I do my technical reading, my CPA, my financial planning, and sometimes I have to read these god-awful studies on the brain. And <laughs> I'll do that reading in the morning. And then it, about an hour into it, um, my my prefrontal cortex will roll up the white flag and and tell me that it's time to surrender. It's time to surrender. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm very impressed with um, you waking up early. That will like give me some guidance as well going forward. Another question. Um, it's very important for young adults to use financial products very early in the game um, and outline a plan to get them going. What age do you recommend to start a financial plan for a young adult like my daughter? I think the uh, age 14 is a great age because even though in some states you have to be 16 to start working, I mean, most people, most kids really are able to, to do work around the neighborhood or part-time work uh, around the neighborhood for, you know, I was doing it at age 12 and, uh -huh. and uh, just mowing lawns and, and shoveling snow and, and gardening for, older neighbors who needed help. And uh, I think 14, when you start making money, let's put it that way. When you start earning some money, I think that's the time parents need to, to step in and say, okay, here's what we're going to do with that money. 50% of that money you get to keep and do your kids stuff with 50% is going into um, either a bank account or an IRA, uh, like a Roth IRA for the kids. Uh, you can, Earn, you know, you can you can do a Roth IRA uh, equal to the amount of your earnings. So you'd have to report some of the earnings, but it's not a problem when you're a kid because you, they're not taxed anyway uh, because their income is usually low. 
So you do a Roth IRA for uh, the child, and then you start uh, showing the child, hey, this is what we're going to do with the money in the Roth IRA. And, and you know, you could get like, uh, just pick companies. Don't, I wouldn't do mutual funds, even though I'm, I'm a certified financial planner and I'm, I'm, we're supposed to tell you to avoid stocks. When you're a kid, it's important to learn about uh, companies and how they make a profit and how and how that their profits and how the, the way that they're managed affects their stock price. So if you could, uh, you know, buy a few shares of this stock and a few shares of that stock and hold it in the Roth IRA, when the stock goes up, you could say, hey, look, you know, you you're you invested in this Roth IRA. We had, you know, three hundred dollars here. Now it's up to four hundred dollars. And, and the, you know, the, then the kids might get start to get interested in investments. See, saving, you're teaching them how to save, and you're teaching them how to invest. Saver investors were a, a, the majority of the self-made millionaires in my study. The other ones were the big company climbers, the virtuosos, and the entrepreneurs. Uh, so, and those are the four, the four paths to wealth which I really would like to talk about because the kids uh, need to understand that there's more than one way to um, to become wealthy. And the right way is the, the path that's right for your personality type. And so we'll, maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, please, Alan, if you don't mind, go for that now, if you don't mind. Cool. All right, so here's here's probably besides the, the rich habits and the poor habits, this is maybe the most uh, important discovery, I believe, in uh, the industry of wealth creation. Uh, nobody else has talked about this, and this is something I found in my research. There are four paths to wealth. The saver investor path, big company climber path, virtuoso path, and the entrepreneur path. The saver investor path is where you save 20% or more of your, income, your net income, and then you invest it. The big company climber path is the path where you are climbing the ladder in a in a big company, if it's a uh, corporation, it's a it's a publicly held corporation. If it's a privately held business, it's usually a partnership like a law firm, uh, accounting firm, or um, engineering firm, things like that, right? Where you become a partner and then you get to share in the profits. Uh, then there's the virtuosos. These are the individuals. I think I'm, I'm kind of in that category where they're experts in, in their industry. They're, they're at the top in their industry. They might even have graduate degrees or PhDs. So that so it does require an investment of time and sometimes and oftentimes money. Uh, so uh, and then the last one is the entrepreneur path. That's the the that's the hard hardest path there is. But it's also the path that generates the most wealth in the shortest period of time. But the, um, the sacrifices you have to make as an entrepreneur are enormous. So each path has its own unique requirements, has its own unique personality profile. For example, um, if you're shy, reclusive, uh, you would probably be, be a good candidate for the saver investor path or the virtuoso path, right? You would not be a good candidate for the entrepreneurial path or the big company climber path because both of those paths require that you have to be outgoing and gregarious in, in that you're willing to meet new people, you know, uh, press the flesh, that kind of thing. Uh, build relationships. So you have to have that kind of personality that allows you to be comfortable with uh, being around a lot of different people. Uh, and uh, the entrepreneur path, a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they, the idea of sitting behind a desk for eight, nine, 10 hours a day, they, they, they want to blow their brains out, right? So the saver investors and the virtuosos, that's their personality profile. They could sit behind the desk for, for 14 hours a day. Uh, so uh, there's all sorts of different personality traits that are associated with each path. And there's also different rich habits associated with with each path wow. so i think the most important discovery i made was these four paths and why is it so profound because so many people don't make it in life they they there's only about three to four percent of the population that really 
are, I guess you could say, are truly wealthy. So why aren't the other 96% wealthy? I'm certain it's because they're on the wrong path. They picked the wrong uh, path to wealth. Uh, so they didn't know that they might have been a shy, reclusive person, and they had this bugaboo about becoming an entrepreneur, and they became an entrepreneur, and they're not suited to be an entrepreneur. Um, so I think most people are on the wrong path in life, the wrong wealth path. And uh, and, and I'll give you an example. I was. I started out working for Arthur Anderson, a big company, and then I went to another big company as an assistant tax director. And I said, I'm going to climb the ladder. I'm going to become a senior executive. I, I, I might even become CEO. Boy, did I hate dealing with the office politics. I hated it. I got into a fight with the CFO, a physical fight. We got it came to blows. I, I, and I, I said, this is not for me. I can't. I can't if, if somebody says something to me and is nasty, I'm going to punch him in the nose. That's how I felt. And this guy was so nasty to so many people. And then he, he set his sights on me for, for whatever reason. It was a big mistake on his part. But I almost got fired. And I had to be counseled in my company because I was an important part of the company. I was one of the brainiacs there. Uh, but they didn't want uh, to fire me because uh, – but I, they should have fired me. And I, uh, I said, I'm, I'm not suited. I'm not suited for this big company climber path. I didn't call it that back then. Uh, the politics are terrible when you have to deal with that. And and somebody is always pulling your strings. You're in, you're a puppet for somebody else. Uh, so you have to have a personality uh, profile that you're okay with that, you know, dealing with that stuff. I wasn't. And I spent 10 years of my life, you know, try, trying to climb the company ladder. Only, oh, I, I wish I knew it was the wrong path for me. So if you're on the wrong path, you're you're really not going to succeed in life. If you're on the right path, you're going to increase your odds for success tenfold. There's no doubt about it. In fact, I think it's almost guaranteed that you will become at, at very at the very least uh, upper middle class. That is an answer. Christ. I got to do this on that one. That was that was, that was good. So. <laughs> We, yeah. we help people yeah. like do career assessment tests, right? And so it's funny from the high school's perspective, you do a career assessment test, they kind of look at your personality and all that. And then it's, it's normally measured for two things. One, to see how you can communicate with others based upon your communication style, right? If you're, you know, high I, whatever that is. And then the other one is to figure out, okay, what's the best fit for you to choose for a major? And then what's the best colleges? But ultimately we're going to college to get a good paying job and to make some money so we can take care of ourselves and create wealth. And so I wonder if there's a way to have a career assessment test built around what you just said, because people are losing the compound effect. And I don't know if you can talk about this, the compound effect of good habits. I mean, you lost a decade going down mm -hmm. one path, but what about the compound effect of not money, but good habits? Yeah. So, so like you, you forge habits that are related, you, but, whether you want to or not, you have to forge habits that are related to the path that you're on. And then when you realize I'm on the wrong path, those habits may not really do you much good on this other path, right? Uh, so like a perfect example is if you, you know, you're a, uh, you realize at some point that you're meant to be a virtuoso, which means you should be, uh, have gotten a graduate degree, you should go to get your PhD and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you, you know, you've spent most of your time trying to be an entrepreneur and you developed all these entrepreneur habits that don't work as a virtuoso. The virtuoso uh, habits are, you know, different than the entrepreneur habits. The virtuoso habits might include uh, studying every single day to, to improve your knowledge or practicing every single day to improve your skill set. If you figure out, uh, you know, 15 years into your career that you really should be a virtuoso and that you should maybe this, you have an innate skill. Like I found out I should have been an author in my whole life because I have this innate writing skill or maybe a journalist or something. Well, um, you know, now I had to forge all these new habits uh, around my, my new career path.
And that was like, you know, practicing every day to write. I write, that's why I write a, a, a article every day. Um, I write it to get better every day and also to share my information. So I'm practicing every single day, at least an hour and a half every single day. And, uh, and you know, you don't, you really don't do that in as an entrepreneur as an entrepreneur you're you're you you got five balls in the air you don't have time to practice on any one thing right you you outsource that you hire people who are have a specific uh talent or skill set so that uh, that you don't have so an entrepreneur is really uh, about juggling and virtuoso is uh, holding on to that one ball and and really you know protecting that ball so I, uh, I think, you know, there's different habits and uh, the saver investors uh, habits like I and I could never be a saver investor. If your particular life circumstances are such that you're, you're raised in a poor household and your family members, you, you maybe you're the, one of the few that is making a decent living. Well, guess what happens after you save three or four thousand dollars? Somebody calls you or texts you. I need a thousand dollars. I can't tell you how many times that happened to me with my father. Uh, you know, I remember one time I saved about $6,000 and uh, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my wife. I just did it on my own. I saved it. And my father called and said, you know, they're, uh, they're about to foreclose on my house and I need uh, $8,000 to pay the property taxes or next month they're going to auction the house off. Yeah, so I took my $6,000 and I took my credit card and I gave him $8,000. Now I'm $2,000 in the hole. If you're in that particular environment, there's no way you can be a saver investor. I don't care. Unless you just say no. You say no to your, your father. You say no to your mother. You say no to your you, you know, child who needs money, who's an adult child. It's hard to do. I know I can't do it. So, uh, you know, you have to have the environment and and your personality have to be right uh, for the particular path that you're on. And for me, a saver investor was never in in the cards for me. I never <laughs> learned any money habits from my parents. In fact, what I did learn is don't save because somebody's going to take your money away from you. That's what happened to me. My whole my whole almost my whole childhood into college into you know my early thirties and early forties. Uh, so I was never, we were never savers. I could never save. Uh, but I was an entrepreneur because I, you, as you can tell, I, I have uh, the gift of gab, the Irish gift of gab, right? I can't shut up. So I love talking to people. I love teaching. I love being around people. I get energized when I'm around people. Uh, and I also love to learn. I love to become like expert at whatever it is. I, I just have that thirst for knowledge. Uh, and I was also a top tennis player. So that's a virtuoso, right? Um, you know, so I, I should have known all these things. I'm a virtuoso and I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a big company climber and I'm not I'm not a saver investor. You know, don't be what you're not. Be so, what you are and follow the right path and you're going to have much more success. So Bridget, I know. I can hear brains just clicking. Bridget, go ahead. She's a writer. So I want definitely, you said some things I know that sparked her. I just um, thank you so much for being so generous with your journey and, and your knowledge. Um, I, I can so relate to so much um, of what you've said and um, just thinking through trying to be a, um, just trying to fit into roles that really weren't meant for me. I can, I can really, really relate to that. I, I'd like to go back to a couple of things that you said at the beginning of, of our conversation. Um, you pointed out that um, you find that mistakes are beautiful. And you talked about a client and um, you said that he asked, what am I doing wrong? And so I thought about how many of us in trying to climb the corporate ladder or trying to become more successful, we hear a lot about the importance of confidence. Um, but what I heard from you and what you shared was that there's power in vulnerability. So I, I wondered if you might be able to expand on that a little bit because it seems to me that people open up and develop more when they are coach coachable and vulnerable. Um, I yeah, I think I, you, what you we're going down a rabbit hole here, and I'm going to be careful that I don't go too deep, right? Okay. Our children are raised 
to be to avoid mistakes where the education system the, as it exists right now punishes mistakes it's a big problem um, instead of uh, patting kids on the back and saying hey you made a mistake what did you learn from it instead you get an F and then you got to bring it home to your parents and and I'm not going to fault the teachers. It is what it is. The system is what it is, but it's the wrong system. It does not work. So we go into our adult lives. And now we're somebody's boss. And what do we do? We beat them up over mistakes. Because why? Mistakes are bad. We have been indoctrinated to believe mistakes are bad rather than just beautiful roses that we should take and put on the mantle. I remember when I had somebody who used to work for me uh, and they made this horrific mistake. And I made a copy of, of the piece of paper where they made the mistake. And I put it up on my wall and I, and I, wrote, I wrote some nice things around it, you know? And, and they looked at it and said, what do you, why did you, what? I don't understand why you have my mistake. Why are you so proud of my mistake? I said, because you never made that mistake again, because it's on my wall. And if you go to somebody and you say, uh, this is wonderful, this mistake you made, it, 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 you can't help but the emotions rise up in the person because it's not negative emotions, it's positive emotions because they're almost happy and giddy because they're not getting yelled at and so they're, they're, the, the positive emotions are so powerful that they form this incredible long-term memory. You know, the best memories we have are ones that are, are born from emotions, right? We never forget emotional memories. We will, we will be 90 years old with Alzheimer's, and we will still remember an emotional memory when we were seven years old. Uh, they stick with the brain. They're like railroad tracks in the brain. So when you uh, use, when you understand how the brain works and that the amygdala helps form emotional memories and you, and, and you can pull out of some, some experience with somebody, a mistake or failure and make, turn it into a positive emotional thing, they'll never forget that mistake that they made. And I guarantee you, They'll never make that mistake again. But if you beat somebody up over, over mistakes with negative uh, emotions, the fear that they have, negative emotions actually shut down your prefrontal cortex uh, to some degree. So now your prefrontal cortex is not operating at full capacity and you're not functioning. You're not getting the most out of that person. And so you are probably, they're going to make another mistake again. Uh, so you, you, you know, it's, I, I used to have this saying uh, that a bad managers uh, are like somebody who has like a copier and the copier is not working and they start kicking it. Instead of opening it up, looking inside, finding out what's wrong, they kick it. Well, that's what bad negative people who are overseeing other people do. They're the worst kind of managers. They shouldn't even be managers. But that's what they do. They, they, they approach things from a negative um, perspective where mistakes are bad. Instead, what, what I believe is the right approach in our education system is to encourage mistakes. The more mistakes you make, the higher your grade. Wow. Like wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Wow. Yeah, um, that made me think about something. Um, in terms of your do it now mindset and connecting that with emotions. Um, I was thinking about how usually with procrastination, it's not necessarily a matter of somebody not wanting to do it. It might be a matter of the negative emotions, trying to avoid that and associating it with that task. So I was wondering how you suggest that people reframe their perspective so that they may feel some sort of positive emotion that might motivate them to accomplish their goals and tasks. So you're talking about procrastination, which is born out of negativity. Uh, a lot of people say people who procrastinate are just lazy. It's it's not. Uh, there's actually a a um, I have one, one a great study on on procrastination, and the the study what they found was 
that most people who procrastinate, uh, they're operating from a negative emotion standpoint and they're blowing out of proportion. They're supersizing the actual effort that it takes to perform whatever task it is that you're procrastinating on. So they, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like, um, the law, the more you d delay engaging in a task, the, the greater the level of difficulty, the perception of the level of difficulty is. So my solution to that is, um, if you're procrastinating on something, uh, all you need to do is say, I'm going to work on this for five minutes. Five minutes is all it takes. Now, you may do it for five minutes and you may put it down. I can tell you I do this all the time. Uh, so I have something like I'll have a big project that I'm uh, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, right? This is a big thing. We just got new funding on the COVID. And I had the it's about this thick, the reading material. And so I put it on my desk after printing it out. <laughs> right after it was, right after it was uh, signed into legislation, and I said, I put it right on the front of my desk in my home office because it was the Christmas holidays when it was passed. And uh, when I got down to the desk, I, I looked at it and I said, "Oh God!" Right? I said, "But I'm only going to read five minutes," and I did. I read five minutes that that Saturday, that Sunday, if that Sunday morning. That Monday morning, I was still off, and I, my brain was working because some of the things that I read in that five minutes uh, got the attention of my subconscious, and it, my subconscious started going to work, and it started uh, talking to me inside my head, and the next morning when I woke up, I read for two hours because I only did that five minutes of work, but it got my brain uh, to, to really be focused on that material even though it was only five minutes it said okay we really got to dive into this now uh and if and to be honest with you when i went down there i wasn't expecting to read for two hours i was only expecting to read for maybe honestly about 30 minutes and i ended up going for two hours so i think the solution to procrastination knowing that it's coming from a negative uh emotion part of your brain is uh don't fight your brain just do five minutes. Five minutes is all it will take. And then put it down, pick it up again the next day, five minutes. I, I trust, trust me on this. It works. I've been doing it. You know, I did it when the 2018 tax reform bill came out. I did the same exact thing. I read for five minutes. I got enough information in my brain where I said, oh, this is really bothering me. I got, I've got to get the rest of the information in my brain. So um, I don't know. It's just uh I think that's one of the solutions. Don't look at it as Mount Everest. Look at it as just a little incline on, on, the, on your path. Uh, take five minutes and just, it's the same thing for, by the way, exercising. A lot of people wake up. I wake up uh, early and then at part of my rich habits routine after I do my reading and some of my research is at about 6.30 in the morning, I go to the gym and I lift weights and I uh, run. So that takes about an hour and then I get to the office. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, there are days when I, I know I've got to do my 30 minute run. Some during the weekends, I do my long runs, but during the week and I'll say, I don't really feel like doing 30 minutes. And I always say, just do five minutes. Five minutes turns into 15 minutes, turns into 30 minutes. It's almost all the time. If I just get it in my head, I'm only doing five minutes. I'll do whatever the heck, the thing that I don't want to do, I'll do it. That's good. Man, the time went by fast. Mika, I know you had a question because we've got like one minute. So I'm going to go ahead and let you do what you do. I know, right? So I'm, I'm really, really stuck on this three to 4% of wealth and this 96% are unwealthy or fall into that, you know, middle class category. So based on all the things that you've learned and the research that you've done, what do you feel is, is the most impactful thing that can be done for the youth today 
to reverse those numbers of the 96 versus the three to four percent? Experimentation. Um, how many how many kids uh, they play six years, seven years of baseball or football or soccer? Every three months, uh, kids should be trying some new activity out. Every three months. You only find your innate talents through experimentation. I mentioned I didn't know I was a good writer until I was about 48 years old. Why? Well, I never wrote, wrote before. Well, this is why I love the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. They have these things called uh, badges, right? You get badges if you're doing an activity. I think to, you know, the Boy Scouts have an Eagle Scout thing that requires something like 40 badges. Anyway, my point is those organizations, they, they know something the rest of us don't know, that our, the innate talents that we possess are only exposed through experimentation. So mm -hmm. if you experiment three months doing something that relates to uh, rocket science or three months of something that re relates to, you know, law or three months to something that relates to engineering, three months for this, three months for that. Don't lock your kids into one activity or two activities. They should be experimenting every three months with something new and different. When when that happens in our society, that those things are going to flip because you know why, Mika? The people that are in the 96%, now a big chunk of them are in the middle class, so they're not necessarily doing badly, but they certainly haven't found their innate talent because the people that find their innate talent these are the people that usually uh, excel in life and they, they become, you know, the most successful people. They just find that thing that they're really good at. And then they devote the rest of their lives to perfecting the skill or improving their knowledge in that area. We only can get there if, if we uh, in embedded in our education system is a mandate that every three months you have to try something new. I love it. We, yeah, I feel like we didn't have enough time. That that was amazing. All right, <laughs> that is definitely definitely great. This that's, that's going to change my approach as a parent, even with yeah. the trying something new every three months. And I have this thing I always say: TSL, try something, see something, learn something. And so that's what I always tell my kids. But this this three month thing is that's huge. That is yeah, so. and what what's cool is when they find because most of the time, to be honest with you, probably I don't know what the percentage is, but let's just say most of the time they're going to do something for three months and they're going to hate it. <laughs> but guess what? That's a good thing because mm. you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> That's not going to be your career path, uh, you know. But you, you might find like after like the sixth or seventh activity, uh, you, you find something that you really like. And, he, and here's, here's another thing that I just want to bring up. When you look back, um, when you look back on your life, especially your childhood, and you think about, and this probably applies to high school kids and college kids. And you, you think about what are the things that made, made me the happiest. And if you made a list of like, say 10 things that made, that you did as a kid that made you the happiest. What would those things be? And then take those 10 things and figure out how many of those 10 things are actually some type of marketable skill or, or career that you could make money off of. And, and then you pick, maybe it'll, it'll boil down to like two or three. Well, those two or three things, there's prob probably a good chance that those two or three things are the things you should be doing and to make money because because when you're doing something you really like, that's the way the the way the brain rewards you for discovering innate talent is it um, it rewards you with enthusiasm and sort of a, a sense of of excitement and happiness, right? Uh, you enjoy it, and and it's a positive emotional feeling you get from doing it. Uh, that's the brain's way of saying, "Hey, knucklehead, you just found an innate talent." Uh, because now all of a sudden you're very excited about it and that's what you should be doing. That's good. That's yeah. good. We we want to be respectful of your time. So definitely yeah. appreciate you for uh, coming out. I'll let Mika bring it to a close. Thank you so much.
make it for everything. Setting it all up. Yes. So, Tom, we have certainly thoroughly enjoyed you spending your time with us this evening. The things that you have said are truly invaluable. Several takeaways. And I'm such a note taker. So I have all these notes that I was writing down. But you talked about when, you know, when your back is against the wall, the brain will find a way to figure it out. Like, I think that that piece right there for our kids, especially with dealing with the pandemic and social distancing, um, you know, virtual learning, all these things, the kids backs is truly against the wall. And so I think that it is prime time that they're going to be able to figure out the direction that they want to go. I know there is something that was said on the call tonight that is going to help students really figure out where they want to be. And we want you guys to be part of that three to four percenters. And if you have not read Tom's book, Rich Habits, please, please, please do so, because these are definitely habits that based on this conversation that we know that transforms lives. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. So, guys, we want to thank you so much for joining College Coaching Network Social Learning Live. We do this now monthly at 7 p.m. Stay tuned for our next uh, podcast. We again want to thank our special guest, Mr. Tom Corley, for coming on and showing the wealth of his knowledge. Of course, our mission here is always uh, help, guidance, and community. And also thank you for our lovely panelists that came on to engage in this conversation. So thank you guys again. Thank you, Tom. And good night. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much, Tom. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.